welcome to episode 246 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're into week two of everybody's favorite series, Church Discipline. Oh, man. Just just get it right out there. I figured we just should just say off the top or right out of the box. Here's what we're talking about. We're going to round out some of what we talked about last week. We talked a little bit about the theory of church discipline, and now we're getting practical after it. So I listen, the episode last week was phenomenal. It was the definitive episode on the theory of church discipline. That's what that's what others are saying. Yeah, uh, that's, that's not me. That's what everybody else is saying. Definitive I feel like episode. I read that in the New York Times that this was the uh, <laughs> definitive episode on church discipline. Maybe like a little pre-affirmation denial. Denial. Uh, we actually have an episode in our back catalog that's called church discipline. <laughs> so I went into last week's episode thinking we had never addressed this question in any length or depth. And we actually have an entire episode, even down to reflecting on uh, what it means to how do we relate to celebrity pastors that have fallen yes. into disgrace. Yeah. So apparently I'm just, I, I, we've made so many episodes at this point. I, get, I don't even remember what we've talked about. So I guess it's just time to start the catalog over again. Just so that people don't reach out to us and say, well, like you made a mistake. What I think you were intending to say was that this is the definitive episode on church discipline. What preceded this one was just an episode on church discipline. Yeah, it was like the definitive pre-episode. Yes. Yeah. Every. I mean, everything's that, definitive. You just have to define what that is definitive of. It was prolegomena that we had set aside, and then we thought, <laughs> you know what, we're going to return to this in about 200 episodes, and yeah. then we'll really flesh it out. Yeah. And of course, that's exactly what we're doing today. So that's before true. we get to putting a little bit more shoe leather on this topic, let's go to those affirmations and denials. And I'll turn it over to you. What are you affirming on this episode? So I am affirming the Presbyterian Church in America General Assembly, which was last week. Uh, we're going to try to get someone on to do kind of like a recap of the the 40th, is it the 40th, I think, the 40th General Assembly of the PCA, um, because it was a big deal assembly. But, you know, I, I, I tried to catch what I could of it by live stream. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because you've got like they spent like 45 minutes doing motions and debating whether they were going to switch around to points of order on the schedule. That's I would say that's only something Presbyterians do. But actually, the SBC did a lot of that, too. But uh, it was just it was a good assembly. Um, the decisions that were made were good, godly, conservative decisions, which was something that was, uh, I think, a bit of a concern going into this. I know a lot of guys who are ruling and teaching elders in the PCA, and they were nervous about this assembly and what it might mean for the future of the PCA. So we'll get into more of that when we have our recap episode, whenever that'll be sometime in the next month or so, uh, with whoever in the PCA I managed to trick into coming on the show. But uh, it was good. The decisions were good. The theology behind the decisions was sound. Uh, from what I can tell, for the most part, uh, the the debates were respectful. There wasn't the same kind of like posturing and gaslighting as much that we saw in the 40, uh, 49th General, 39th General Assembly, the, the one immediately prior to the pandemic. Um, 
I can see that Jesse's typing, so he's trying to figure out which assembly this was. He's going <laughs> to just blast me for being wrong on something here. Uh, so yeah, I'm just affirming it. It was it was good. It was godly. Uh, it was in decent and good order, as all Presbyterian things should be. Uh, and like I said, it, I think it took it took a lot of work by good godly men in that denomination to do all of the upfront work to prepare the arguments and things like that that needed to be made. Uh, and then it required good godly ruling elders and teaching elders to actually spend the money to go to the uh, assembly to be able to vote and express their positions and, and vote according to their conscience. So I'm just affirming the whole thing. I think it was just a really, it was a huge win for conservative reformed uh, theology and ecclesiology in the United States. So I want to clarify now that people know that I was typing while you were giving that excellent explanation. I want to explain why actually I was looking up something far less spiritual oh, and okay. that was, I want to know what was the formal term or formal definition of the term gaslighting. Cause I think oh. this has kind of like become in vogue more recently. Yeah. And I was like, it's possible I'm not, it's one of those, it's like Princess Bride style. Like you keep using that word, yeah. not you per se, but I mean like generally like the zeitgeist, like people keep using this word. So according to, and this is actually more funny based on this sp specific definition, based on what you just said, but uh, Miriam Webster describes gaslight the verb as to attempt to make someone believe that he or she is going insane as by subjecting that person to a series of experiences that have no rational explanation. Yeah. Yeah. More colloquially, it's like when, uh, when like someone continually tries to convince you that your your perceived concerns are not actually legitimate concerns, right? It's used a lot in like uh, discussions about abuse, where a victim of abuse is kind of continually told like, no, no, you don't need to worry about that. That wasn't abuse. Right. You're misunderstanding it. Um, that's kind of how it's used, and that happened a lot at uh, the uh, previous assembly, which I believe was the 39th. Um, and it happened a lot leading up to this where, where people who were opposing the more conservative side of the debate were basically like they were making up things about what, what was going on. They were minimizing the concerns by mischaracterizing them. Um, so, yeah, there was just a lot of that going on. And at least as far as I could see on the actual floor of uh, Presbytery or General Assembly in this case, there wasn't a lot of that going on during the floor speeches and things like that. So that was encouraging. Um, there's a lot of inside baseball with the PCA that I'm hoping to get uh, one of my ruling elder friends on to talk about the importance of ruling elders in the General Assembly, because that's been a big issue and topic uh, going on in the PCA. But just in general, we'd like to do a recap of that whole thing. I think that we're missing out on like a huge opportunity here, which is like we should do some kind of massive live stream. And we can connect our listeners who are from different traditions to all the different conferences that are happening. Because I think yeah. it's also just fascinating to hear how Christians who are trying to honor Jesus Christ in their church governance are going about that process. Yeah. But is there not an amazing opportunity to do this live and then to be like, now we're going to the floor yeah. to the PCA conference. That's That would be awesome. Like you yeah. cut in. And then somebody's like, let me give you an update of what we just talked about for 45 minutes. Yeah. It'd be amazing. I would love that. It'd be so cool. And the answer would be like, we just spent 45 minutes trying to decide whether we were going to address this question before or after lunch. And the time expired uh, to address the question. So actually, we're going to have to wait until next year to address the question. That's like what we would be talking about, because that kind of stuff happens. And that, that actually plays into like some of the strategy behind what happens at general assembly is sometimes i mean it's kind of like it's a filibuster sometimes people will right. filibuster a particular issue and i think some people have this idea that 
there's a set order of things that need to be voted on, a set order of business that needs to be accomplished, and they just stay there until it's done. And that's not that's not how a local presbytery usually works, although it might be more like that on a local level. But at the General Assembly, like if you run out of time because debate went long on a previous question, then that just gets deferred to next year. And that can be a real strategy that people will use to try to get things pushed away or maybe like the assembly loses steam and so they don't address it or next year's assembly has a different mix of ruling versus teaching elders ruling elders tend to be a little more conservative on the whole teaching elders tend to be a little more liberal on the whole so if there's going to be more teaching elders next year there's all sorts of that inside baseball that i've i've over the last couple years of actually watching the live stream and asking my pca uh friends why is this a big deal what's going on um They've been able to help me see a little bit of that, but I, I'm going to do an episode with somebody uh, to try to do more of a recap and talk about some of that stuff. That's what I'm saying. This is our opportunity. We have so many good ideas when you and I sit down, I think, and this is the definitive idea is you, what we need is somebody to help translate it yeah. in real time because there's, it's not just about language. It's about the vibe, the feeling, like what's going on. There's always a flavor to denominational gatherings. Right. Mm-hmm. And that flavor for me for Presbyterians is paprika. So like you need somebody just to try to explain what's going on. And I think once you do that, you get like a better sense of appreciation, a greater sense of context. Also, it's just kind of fun to see how other denominations handle all these really important issues. I say we do this. I don't know how we do it. We need to do like some kind of live event. We can stream in, provide like immediate commentary and translation. And it could be like, like, here's the thing. We could have like multiple translators. So it's like, we need like a, somebody who speaks Presbyterian, but they can translate to Baptists. Yeah. Like that would be amazing. Like, here's what we're talking about. I mean, we could just go to the next general assembly. I think it's open <laughs> to the public. So if Even you want to send Jesse and me to the PCA general assembly next time, then uh, we're going to need some people to write some checks, but we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we, we'll take a week off work. You're going to have to pay us that time. It's going to take a lot of money, but we could do it. We could do it. I would do that. And I would be happy to stand like on the floor outside the major gathering and then ask people as they leave. I mean, every yeah. question would start with me would start with something like, so definitely Pato Baptist, right? And I'm sure they'd be like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> like next question. So next question. I'm down yes. with that. What about you, Jesse? What are you affirming this week? Your, well, here's the thing. Your affirmation actually caused me to change midstream. If you will, I backpedaled a little bit because I had one thing in mind and then I went to another because something this week I was listening to an album and made me think of you and it made me laugh out loud when I heard this final line. So I'm affirming with uh, Timothy Brindle's album called The Unfolding. Timothy Brindle is a rapper. He This album, I think, has been out for quite some time, actually. But now, this thing is like an amazing album. Uh, the whole point of this, the whole theme of this whole album is how the Old Testament scripture unfolds the grand arc of God's narrative in redemption and salvation through and represented particularly in Jesus Christ. But the reason why I was like, man, I got to affirm this is not only because like, there's songs on this album that are nine minutes long and it's just jam packed with like aggressive, amazing, specific, disciplined, detailed theology. It's, it's almost unequaled, I would say, in its expression of theological content, like writ large, any Christian album, but there's, I can't remember the track. It might be, cause this is like, this is how amazing the tracks are. Like track nine is called death and resurrection part two circumcision. Track 10 is called death and resurrection part three water judgment. It's a full treatment of water judgment in a song. Like it's amazing. Nice. But 
One of the songs ends with Timothy Brindle creates this whole strong argument for covenant and redemption and baptism. The last line of the track, and I apologize, I can't remember which one it is. I think it's 10, just ends with, so if you have kids, baptize them. End of story. Like that, it just cuts. I laughed out loud when it got to that point. And I was like, that's actually the strongest case I've ever heard made yeah. to music. Just, so this album is like, yeah, it's crazy. But by the time you get to that and you hear that final line, you're like already going for a pitcher of water if you have a child. It's <laughs> it's that strong. It's that good. So this album is like amazing overall. It's called The Unfolding. And I highly commend it to all of our listeners. Nice. Nice. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. It's It's in a weird kind of lane, right? Because... Timothy Brindle is like unapologetically Presbyterian, which yeah, I'm totally down with. That's fine. But uh, it's, you know, it's rap. It's not, not that all Presbyterians are like exclusive somnity, but you end up more in that vein than you do right. with like other denominations. So it's like a really lovely thing, but this music is so strong. It's it almost like after you listen to this album, you'll be like, how can I listen to other, I hate to say it this way, but I think you know where my heart is at. Like, other lesser Christian music that's like yeah. really shallow. I, I, I have nothing wrong with like repeating a particular important theological concept by the way of lyrics over and over in a song. But if you listen to this and I would encourage our listeners to go and find this on Spotify, then go immediately and Google the lyrics so you can follow along with him. And you're going to find like they routinely literally exegete scripture and they'll say, we're about to exegete this passage. And they do that. They also bring in the original textual criticisms and the language. So like the track on, I think it's number four called Head Crusher, which is all about David and Goliath. Like he's talking about the word kaskasim. And yeah, it's, it's amazing. So like I can't, again, commend this enough. Just stop what you're doing. Stop, stop listening to this and go listen to the unfolding. Yeah, we'll be here when you get back. We'll be here. Just yeah. like we started that episode on church discipline so long ago. Yes, we did. We're still here. We're still here. Yeah, we're still here. So let's do some denials. What yeah. are you denying? So this is a little bit more on the serious side. Um, I had Ooh. an experience over the past week that just reminded me of how much uh, the corrupt sin nature clings on. So I'm going to lay myself bare here a little bit. So I recently did a series of messages uh, for my church on the Ten Commandments. And so as part of that study, I, you know, I was deep diving into what do the commandments mean. And as I've remarked several times over the last 240-odd episodes, studying the way that the Reformed, uh, the Reformed tradition expands and understands this sort of all-encompassing uh, view of the Ten Commandments as like these, these ten moral precepts that govern all of life, uh, as I've commented, like studying the Ten Commandments has driven me more and more to be holy and to to take things seriously. And so I had a I had an experience where I uh, saw somebody online uh, in one of the Facebook groups that I'm a part of made kind of a a joke about uh, Ed Litton, who is the now president of the SBC, who's embroiled in a huge plagiarism. Uh, controversy. It sounds like he's lifted a bunch of sermons uh, from other pastors, sometimes with permission, sometimes not. Uh, but he's not writing his own sermons is, is apparently what's going on. And I kind of made the point like, hey, you know, we should call out sin, but like we maybe shouldn't be so giddy about it when we do that. 
and right. not not a week earlier, and actually it was because I was getting ready for the church discipline episode we did last week, I made just a snarky, snotty meme about about Mark Driscoll. And someone pointed it out to me and said, how is what this what you did a week ago different than this right here? And I, I feel like the Holy Spirit was present in my life enough at that moment. I could say, it's not. This is just my sin nature. So I'm just denying my sin nature and just... Just if you're out there and you see me do something like that online, please call me on it. I hope that I'm a I'm a uh, receptive enough person that most of the time I'm I'm open to that correction. I'm open to that criticism. I know not always, but um, I want to be real. I want to be honest, and I, I'm I'm not above being corrected publicly for things. Um, sometimes I may not respond the way I ought, but uh, sometimes I do. So I'm just I'm just denying that about myself. I mean, I think it's it's kind of the universal denial of a Christian that like we. It's Romans 7, right? I, the, the things that I want right. to do when I recognize righteousness, I want to do those things, but yet I still do the things that I don't want to do. And at times I don't even realize that I'm doing the things that I know are wrong. So yeah, so that's my denial. I know it's a little heavy. It's kind of, I guess Adventures in Romans 7 is another new series we're going to have to launch <laughs> off on because it feels like that stuff happens a lot too. You know, it's funny you say that because... Now all the time in my in just conversations with people, either with my wife or my friends, I use the phrase adventures in Romans one all the time as if like they understand, like that's yeah. been a legitimate phrase that we've coined and they, I can just say that and they understand the context yeah. in which I'm coming. But, uh, I, well, let me just kind of, if it's okay with you, I want to kind of, I guess, come along with that denial because there's a couple of things this week that I've been processing for myself as well. Again, I'm, I'm reading through the doctrine of repentance and finding that not only do I just not understand repentance, but I've applied it in ways that are wrong a lot of the time. And so I think there's, it's one thing to say from like a theological perspective, or maybe even better yet from like an intellectual perspective that we are fundamentally people that are stained by sin in every way. It's another thing to say like, but I see that manifest in my life and I'm willing to be exposed in it. And I I just want to come alongside that denial and say like, I, I'm realizing that there's so many things that I thought I understood about myself, about how I handle things where I see like the visceral sin, the natural nature coming into play. And we don't hide behind that by saying, well, because we are totally depraved, there, you just have to take me as I am, or sometimes I'm going to do these yeah. things and it's not going to be right. But that the life of the Christian is always battling against that in an active way, not in our own merit or by our own power, but through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So it's one of those things where I like it because it could be the perpetual denial, isn't it? It's like right. every every breath I breathe, it, the, the exhale should be an apology to God for the fact that within me still is so much that rebels yeah. against him, that I am a covenant breaker by nature. Yeah. And even when we are saved, we do not become covenant keepers because somehow we've been so radically transformed that now we always keep the covenants, but that God covers over that covenant breaking. And then as if, because he is so great, you know, we talked about this before, be one thing if God said, listen, I'm not going to hold against you the fact that you're a covenant breaker. So just go with amnesty and live a life that's mediocre. When right. he says you're going to get all the blessings of Christ that come from the covenant keeper. And so I want to be a covenant keeper. And in the transformation, regeneration comes with the Holy Spirit. We are enabled to do that very thing, the imperative and the indicative, of course, that Paul talks about. But at the same time, always there is the rebellion 
that we're fighting against. Like there's gotta be a star Wars metaphor somewhere in this, but like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's always present. There's yeah. always fighting. And so sometimes it's, I feel like it's really good actually to sit back and say, there's a lot within me yet that I need to deny. And I'm just going to publicly say that. And that, that does invite what you're doing, I think, which is to say, if you see that present out there, would you let me know? And yeah. I would, I'll just tag on because you made it easy for me. Do that for me as well. Like probably my interactions online are not as vast as yours because or I'm existent. not as cool. Yeah. I'm <laughs> it's hard for people to see you interact online since you don't do it. Yeah, I'm just lazy and I have no idea what I'm, I don't know the rules. There's rules. I have no idea what they are. Yeah. So, um, like when you like something, when you like to even just to acknowledge, like you've seen it, like, I think there's all these anyway. <laughs> yes. You can call us out loved ones. Like yes. it's, we're part of a family. That's the whole idea here is that yeah. we're actually working together on theology, understanding what it means to know God and then understanding what it means to practice what we know. Yeah. 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 I don't know, there's nothing else to add to that. Sorry to like, let's go into the episode on church. No, discipline. Well, I actually think, here. no, no, no. I actually think that's really good because church discipline sometimes comes in with this vibe that it is a downer. Yeah. And I would refer people back to that definitive episode of which we've already spoken about, because I think to summarize a little bit, I think we talked about the idea that like behind church discipline is this, it's a grand project of God's redemptive history. And that this yeah. is meant to be something so that local churches, you make this point really well, local churches should be those places on earth where the nations can go to find humans who are increasingly image God truly and honestly. And unless that happens by way of accountability through the means of church discipline, it will not happen. So we spoke a little bit just about that concept, but what we wanted, what we wanted to get after in this particular episode is then, so what? So we've talked about those things. I think most people would agree. Yes, some church discipline is necessary. Yes, I can see the merits of what you guys are talking about. Hopefully you see that the scripture is supporting this, is putting it forward. It's promulgating this idea. But at the end of the day, in the final analysis, what should it look like? And we did look a little bit at Matthew 18, but I think our objective today is to really get into it and say, well, let's talk about somebody wrongs you or you think you've been offended how do you even begin to process that? Yeah. And then how is the church responsible to bring about discipline when it's appropriate because it, the, the offense has been escalated? Yeah. Yeah. And we'll just throw this uh, this blanket disclaimer on this episode. I'm not a pastor. Jesse's not a pastor. So th- there pastor. are certainly on the ground realities that each local church and the session of elders or the elder board or whatever your local, you know, your local church calls it, the the, the men who are responsible for administering the church uh, locally there are realities on the ground that make every situation unique and have to be handled with justice and prudence by those men taking into account the particularities of that situation. So please, please, please don't uh, run to your pastor after this and say, Jesse and Tony said you have to handle this church discipline situation this way, because that's not what we're trying to do. Um, I think what what we're going to try to do today is we're going to try to maybe talk about some example situations, um, maybe ones that we've experienced and how it was handled and what went well, what didn't, or, um, you know, theoretical situations. There's one that someone from the Facebook group asked a question that we can kind of talk about. But this is not intended to be uh, a sort of like an authoritative standard normative position for how to handle you know an individual church discipline situation. This is one of those things that is so particular to your local congregation and your local body that it really is something that you have to trust your local 
body of elders to handle well right. uh, and to trust when they make a decision to submit to that decision. Obviously, if you think they're making an unbiblical decision, you should approach that with them and, and address that with them. And sometimes, and I would actually say sometimes the improper use or handling of discipline, which most often takes the form of just not doing anything, not doing discipline, that can be a reason why someone may need to leave a church. If, if discipline is not being handled, then, then there's a deep problem that, um, that's one of those things you should ask the question. Is it, is it time for us to move on? But that is something that has to be handled directly and locally with your local church. Right. That, I mean, that's well said. And what I find interesting is even with what you said there, we're still, I would say not even subtly insinuating that, there is a context in a loose structure, but of course, like being loving means being particular. Right. And so a particular situation is going to demand a particular type of response. But what we've, I think said before is that Jesus grants local congregations, the authority to discipline their own. And we see that in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, so much we talked about before this whole idea of like the power of the keys for binding and loosing on earth, for instance, which is first mentioned in Matthew 16, those are handed to the local congregation. And part of that responsibility is in bringing about a space where God is honored. This isn't about like smiting somebody right. or revenge because they did something wrong or trying to call them out just for the sake of trying to isolate a particular person or behavior. This is all about God's glory and preserving that glory, or at least manifesting that glory because God's glory is preserved no matter what we do. So I think what's interesting is, is I think it's appropriate to say as we start that every sin, no matter how small, still falls into the realm of what two Christians may lovingly raise with one another in a private setting and to have prudence in that kind of discussion. But that's where it starts, right? That we're we're talking about like a loving conversation between two Christians, one perhaps going to the other and saying, I was offended by this thing, or I'd see this thing present in your life. And I'd like to talk about that very thing. Is it fair to say that that's always where it should start and that the Bible is very clear about that? Yeah. I mean, I think... In general, yes. Yeah. I mean, there are sometimes situations where it merits kind of bypassing that first step, right? If, if a, um, just a, as an example, there's no person I have in mind. This is not an example from my real life. If a woman is being physically beaten by her husband, sure. then it's not right. reasonable to say to her, well, you need to go and talk to him and try to confront him about his sin privately. Um, you know, so there are situations either because of the, the, specifics of that situation or because of the gravity of sin, right? If, if, um, someone was to murder my, my, uh, wife, uh, there would be nothing binding me to go address them for their sin against me privately before I go to the police and to the local church, if they're a Christian and note that, and is important, right? The, the, the ecclesiastical discipline and, you know, secular, um, power of the sword discipline, those two things don't contradict each other. We, we might talk about that a little bit later, but I want to get that out there. But yes, in general, it, you know, God gives us these principles for how to handle sin and interpersonal, interpersonal sin between Christians. And it's wise for us to follow those. Like it's wise for us to do that. And most of the time in my experience, when things really get sideways on this, and, and those of you who have taken previous recommendations and listened to the 10 Minute Bible Hour podcast, you might hear a little bit of uh, Matt's reflections on this and what I'm about to say because he's influenced me a little bit on this. Most of the time, 
in my life when I've seen situations go sideways in terms of a, a conflict that doesn't get resolved very well or doesn't get resolved as easily as it could have. It's because uh, I've skipped this first step of, exactly. of trying to deal with the situation personally. And, and I think it goes to say, it, it bears saying too, this is a wise practical model for all forms of interpersonal conflict. Right. But properly speaking... Uh, it's not church discipline unless it's actually going to the church. So right. if you're in a big Facebook group, it's wise if you have a conflict with someone in the group, it's wise for you to go speak to that person directly through a private message. And if they don't listen to you, then then it's wise maybe to grab some other people who are in the group to bring it in and sort of flesh out that conversation and say, yeah, we saw you being a bonehead too. And then it's wise to go to the leadership of that group and ask for them to adjudicate the situation and to, to give you remedy from that, kind of like in a legal sense, like remedy for the error or the sin against you. That's not church discipline, right? Even though it follows the same model, it's not church discipline. So so this pattern of conflict resolution is a wise pattern that the Lord gave us just in general, but its particular application here in the church is actually a divine thing that happens. Right. And I think we, we labored last week to kind of show like, yes, this isn't just a wise model. This is actually God's ordained way of dealing with this. And when you follow this model and it's done properly, then God himself ratifies the decision that the church has made to, you know, cast someone out of the camp as it were. And that should make sense because what we're seeing in this is almost like a microcosmic redemption, aren't we? That this, this plan, what's unfolding here to borrow from Timothy Brindle, apparently is this idea that God is demonstrating what he's done for us in Christ through this communication. So it's not just like, Hey, here's a great textbook on how to resolve conflict right. with your coworkers. Like this is so much more than that, which is why so if I can sneak in my pet peeve again, which is why at the end of this passage, guys goes to great lengths to say, this is so tough. This is such a ratified and particular thing. This is why when two or three are gathered in my name over right. this very thing that I'm present with you in this, because it's a really particular situation that I'm, that, that God is like really on top of that he is concerned about. So yeah. that's why I brought up like this, the beginning point, because to get to the point where so, quote unquote, like it escalates, we have to start with this idea that we need to be like super vigilant, like almost amazingly guarded and not to do the thing which our sin nature is going to want to do, which is to share, let's say that we're offended with by somebody to share that with everybody right. else first to go and tell stories, to create narrative right. instead of saying, I'm not even going to talk to anybody else about this until I really go and process this with the loved one who is my brother right. or sister, whom I ought to be having the first conversation about this. Because I think one way to summarize then the biblical data is to say that formal church discipline is required in cases of it's got to be outward, serious, unrepentant sin. Right. So sin must have an outward manifestation. It must be something that can be seen with our eyes or heard with our ears. And so once we get to this point of like initial, say, confrontation or discussion or dialogue, if it remains outward, serious, unrepentant, then we do need to escalate. So how do we go from there? What's yeah. like the next practical step? Yeah. I mean, I think... Um that outward piece is really important. This has to be something that is actually observable. And th this is something that I think people miss because a lot of times when you're asking these questions about church discipline, people will latch on and be like, well, we don't, we don't discipline people for being greedy. Well, that's because the church can't see greedy. Like that's not right. a thing that you can see. The church is called and individual Christians are called to operate on the basis of visible categories. I'm, I'm going to go back to that because we talked about that a lot last week. We're operating on visible categories. So yes, you may believe that someone is, is 
deeply prideful or is deeply greedy or whatever it may be, that internal motivation that's driving their outward sin, unless that actually manifests in outward sin, it's not that those things are not worthy of church discipline. It's that those internal motivations of the heart are not something that the church can see and act upon. And likewise, I as an individual Christian cannot initiate the process based on, like, here, here's an example of that, that kind of demonstrates how ridiculous it, it seems to be. Let's pretend that you know someone that has never done anything, and this is a this is why it's ridiculous because we all know we all know that this isn't real. But let's pretend you know somebody, you know a guy who has never ever manifested any sort of outward behavior that indicates lust, right? They've never they've never lingered with their eyes too long on a woman. They've never you know they've never made a comment about uh, the attractiveness of a woman. They've never done any of that. It would be insanity for you to go to them and be like, I really am just convicted that you've got a lustful heart. Right. Right. And, and, and actually in my own past, not with me specifically, but I know of people in churches and situations I've been in that were on the more charismatic side where people went to church leadership and asked to have someone disciplined on the basis of some internal motivation that they claimed the Holy Spirit revealed to them. I have a friend who was one of the most passionate Christians that I knew at the time who, because he wasn't dancing and hooping and hollering at a, at a uh, charismatic service, they were told he has a spirit of complacency. He didn't have a spirit of complacency. That was the furthest thing away from this person that I could think of was a spirit of complacency. If anything, I think he needed to like chill out a little bit about certain things, (laughs) but that's what we're talking about. Like, unless there's an outward manifestation that you observe then it can't go any further. You can talk to them about it. You can say, you know, I just get this sense that like maybe you've got an anger problem. And if they say to you, well, what, what, con- what, what, what makes you think that? And you go, no, 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 I just get this feeling. Like maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but you can't go further than that. So I think the first, the first step, obviously, once you've had this conversation with an individual person is to then really think through what are the concrete observable things that I can point to that demonstrate the reality of this person's sin. Right. And that's then what you bring to these other two or three people that the Bible talks about. Maybe it's someone you know that has experienced the same thing. Ideally, it would be someone who experienced the exact same sin that was present when the initial sin took place. Or maybe it's someone that you know and trust that you can say to them, you know, I've really observed this in this person's life. I tried to talk to them about it and they just weren't receptive. Would you come with me and, and we can talk about it. Um, as I said before, the the passage in Matthew 18 assumes throughout the entire, you know, 10 verses or however long it is, the fact of the person's sin is assumed throughout the entire thing. Exactly. So I, I want to like reinforce that. This is not about um, trying to decide who's right and who's wrong. This is not a mediation protocol. This is a judicial situation where a person is accused of a, accused of a sin and then witnesses are brought forth to validate and 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 address the reality of that accusation and then that reality is is ratified by a verdict from the church right? right that's what's going on it's not a it's not a debate about whether or not this person did so you take your right. observations that you have uh, I would say like it's best to actually write them down and to to have some sort of like documentation of it and bring that to whoever it is that you're bringing to serve as witnesses and speak with them and say, I'm trying to confront this person. This is the sin. Uh, this is what I've observed. Here are the concrete things. Those people may say to you, you're crazy. That never happened. That You're understanding right. that wrong. In which case, yeah, then maybe you step back and rethink it a little bit, even though that's not the purpose of this. You're not trying to suss out whether or not this is real. 
you may you may find out through the course of this that you're imagining things and that you're overblowing things. Um, and that that's important. It's important to go and to bring that to people. And it has to be concrete. It has to be outward. And and it doesn't do if someone says to you, well, I'm really sorry about this, and they're genuinely repentant, it, you can't go to the next step and be like, well, they exactly. repented. But, uh, you know, so you're right. Outward, unrepentant, clear, and I would say somewhat significant sin. Right. If someone cut you off, someone cut you off in traffic and you happen to see that it's someone, you know, from church probably doesn't make sense to go to the elders and be like, this person disrespected me on the road. And I, you know, I, I drove them off the road and made, I confronted them for their sin. And like, that doesn't make any sense. But I think those categories you brought up are really good. Yeah. Outward, serious, unrepentant. And in case somebody might like just a quick one person's interpretation of what would basically fall underneath those three categories. I found something that this is an old dude, congregational congregationalist minister, John Engel James. He wrote this five categories, which he put everything in. He would say, if, if anything falls in these five categories, it automatically subscribes to those three characteristics we just gave. One would be all scandalous vices in immorality. So that include sexual immorality, abuse of alcohol, for instance, two denial of Christian doctrine, Three, stirring up of division. Four, the failure to provide for one's near relatives when they are in need. And five, unreconciled enmity. So you get a sense from that list there exactly what we're talking about. This is something that's demonstrative. You see it. So in other words, it's a connection between what you might perceive as a heart attitude that's against uh, the gospel or against God, but then it's also brought into action and it's main, it's made plain and clear. And then once you have that conversation, the person is unrepentant about it, right. is, is literally antagonistic against that. And so that then moves us into this idea of then, well, what does Jesus mean when he says, okay, so bring a couple of people together, you know, and that's again, if it cannot be resolved, then what Jesus is saying is the offender brother should bring, I say brother, because when we're talking about brother or sister, we're talking about right. family, right? Yeah. It's a family conversation at this point. Still, we're saying we give each other that kind of grace to begin with in establishing what is the identity of our relationships, even if we feel that the harmony of the relationship has been compromised. So the offending brother or sister should bring two or three others. Jesus says that every charge to what you just said may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And of course, hopefully it won't be, most people realize is that Jesus is taking that phrase from Deuteronomy 19. Right. And the context of Deuteronomy 19 is actually to first protect people against false accusations. Right. So there's an amazing graciousness. There's far more grace than like your standard book on like arbitrating or being an arbiter of some kind of interpersonal conflict here. There's something very special about this. And so this next step is to say, gather up a couple more people. Now, if you were to ask me, who would that be? If I'm trying to think of my own context, it probably would be, I'd say, I'd want to reach out to a couple of elders and say, I've had this conversation. I've tried to present this argument as best I understood it. I had a conversation. It was confirmed that I understood what I was saying by way of the initial dialogue with this person and they remain unrepentant. I want to follow through with Matthew 18. And so I believe it's appropriate for me to then gather some others who can hear from this person and also then to assess whether or not this is an accurate accusation that I'm bringing right. against them. So to me, practically speaking, that that's elders. I mean, yep. is there another group that would be equally qualified to come and do that? Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard arguments both ways that this is it's required that it's the elders of the church. I don't know that I want to go that far. I think there may be some situations where it actually it, it 
it's not feasible or it doesn't make sense. So, you know, like like the example I brought up, some you're in an online Facebook group and someone has right. slandered you. It probably doesn't make sense to try to gather. And this is this is important. This is a live question we have to address. What about different churches? What about different right. congregations? Exactly. In, That's in why the, I ask. the situation that Jesus is speaking to directly, I think he probably kind of has in mind people who all live in the same community, right? He's talking people who are all in the same milieu of people. It's not the same situation now. And so it might make sense in some situations to grab, you know, like if if I was in the reform pub and somebody was was saying something that just wasn't accurate, I might grab a couple other guys uh, in the group. I keep saying guys because that's who I would go to. But obviously, if you're a woman, you might bring women with you or it doesn't have you could have you could be a guy and bring women with you. I just don't know why you I don't know why I would. So um, it might make sense to grab a couple other people and start a private conversation and say, Hey, you know what? I know things can be misunderstood online. I did try to talk to you about this. It sounded like we were still kind of at odds. I grabbed a couple other people who can read the thread and take a look at it and, and can sort of confirm what I'm saying. And as I said, like, yes, there's a level of assessment that they may say to you, you're really overreading this or that thing that you are, you, you can't get past. You really need to get past that. You need to be able to overlook this in a brother. Like that happens too. Sometimes you think something is serious and it's not. And your, your brothers that you bring with you as the witnesses are there to tell you, yeah, you're not misreading that, but it's also not the the kind of thing that you should make a big deal out of. But assuming that it is, then they're coming not to, uh, hear testimony from both parties, right? They should have already decided more or less when they come to, when they join you in testimony against this person, they should have already come to their conclusion based on the evidence that's been given. That's not to say something can't come up that changes their mind, but that's not the purpose of it. But I think in, in if you're talking about a situation where it's two, two people who live in the same community or go to the same church, it makes sense just from a practical perspective, even if the text doesn't demand it, it makes sense for those to be leaders in the church, elders, the deacons, you know, maybe you're in a church that doesn't have elders. There are those kinds of, I think, kind of weird churches out there that don't have an elder board. There's just a senior pastor and that's it. Maybe it's the people in the church that are kind of the leaders of the church, the pillars of the church who have been there a long time have demonstrated godliness. But yeah, I think you have to be selective and intentional. And when I say selective, I don't mean just pick people who are going to side with you. I mean, pick people who are, impartial enough to be able to confront you if you have erred in your accusation, ideally before you even go to the next person, go back to that person. But also people who are wise enough in the scriptures and judicious enough in their own lives and their own application of the scriptures to be able to address this situation in a mature fashion, right? The the situation comes to mind uh, when, when um, Solomon's son Rehoboam takes over the kingdom Right. And, and the people come to him and they're like, oh, great. Like we finished the temple. <laughs> we, we finished the temple. We did everything Solomon asked us, but it's been a really, right. really hard couple of years with really hard right. labor. Can you alleviate our burden? And he goes to all the old guys in, in the kingdom and they're like, yeah, this makes perfect sense. The temple's done. We don't have to continue driving the people this hard. And then he goes to all the guys that are his own age and they're like, no, no, no. 
you tell them this thing about your father that your your pinky is as big as his thigh, whatever it is. We're gonna sting you with scorpions. Like, doesn't that just sound right. like? Doesn't that sound like just the thing that a bunch of young guys would say? I'm gonna sting you with scorpions. Um, that's not what we're looking for, right? We want that older, more seasoned understanding that's more knowledgeable in the scripture, that's more tempered a lot of times by the passing of time. Um, those are the people you want to bring with you. Yeah, there's a lot of that's interesting about this because we're talking about church discipline in the context of the internet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I labored so much to bring that initial point of you need to have a, a reasonable, loving dialogue first right. with the person. Even if that happens online, you need to say like, that you felt like this was offensive or this was dishonoring to God and you do so in a loving way. And it strikes me that maybe one of the best things that we can have in life, a great gift to us, is that person who can say to you or to me, don't be easily offended. And for me, generally who that person is, is my wife. Because sometimes I'll say something and she'll be like, you need to be not so easily offended by that. To which I usually respond to her by saying something jokingly like, you've offended me. So like, but that's a great blessing, isn't it? Like there's sometimes we just need to get over it and get over ourselves. Now, again, because I say that only because if our standard is something that is a sin that is outward, not repentant and serious, that starts to funnel things down quite a bit. So if we just don't like the way somebody gave us a tone or the way something was said to us, that can be a whole totally different conversation. We right. have to have that conversation and try to resolve that. We got to remember that what Jesus is after here in Matthew 18 and elsewhere, what we're after in this conversation is reconciliation. And if that's really the cause, I think sometimes we go into this idea of church discipline saying like, I want somebody else to affirm that I was right. Yeah. And that's not at all like the underpinning of right. what we're talking about here. So it is an intervention, but it's the kind of intervention that's done in love to bring everybody together. So I'm with you. I think that I asked that ahead of time because we get this next step to like saying, well, tell the church. This is like so few people have actual experience getting to this point. Wouldn't you agree? Like we all talk about this as if like we're all familiar. Like, yeah, we know what that means. Like we're just going to go out like during announcement time. You just raise your hand and be like, here's here's what I want to say to somebody. And the bottom line is to me, again, tell the church means speaking to the elders, like maybe to all of them because they represent the church. It's not like this idea that like you somehow get up and just lambaste somebody right. in some kind of like very public context because you veer at your wits end and they won't listen to you. They didn't listen to a group of people, but it's like really going to the elders and saying like, I guess at this point I'm turning it over in a sense right. to you all to say like, what's the next step? Yeah. Yeah. And the one modification that I might make in an age of internet, right. Or even in an age you know, you got to think about when when the New Testament was written, even if you were talking about people in your community and somehow you were in a situation where you were in a conflict with someone who went to a different local congregation, people didn't move about in the world that much on a regular right. basis. And so the assumption in Matthew 18, I think, and I think this is defensible, although I'm not going to defend it right now, the assumption is that the two or three people that you bring with you are the elders of the local congregation. That, right. That's the assumption. And right. so you've already gotten to the point where you've talked to the elders. In our day and age, where it's very common for you to be interacting with people who are a part of a different congregation, especially when you're talking about people on the internet or people, maybe it's, maybe you work in a, you know, you work a 45 minutes away from the church you go to. There's this implied step 
that is really part of step two, but in our day and age and context, it kind of needs to be separated from step two a little bit. We'll call it like 2.5 or 2A or something like that, where you now go to the elders of that person's church, not your right. elders, unless it's the same church, that person's church. That is not the same step as step three. Step exactly. three is when the elders of the church bring it before the entire congregation to... in. Baptist polity or congregational polity, it generally speaking, is a congregational vote. Um, and different church constitutions have different thresholds for what that vote would have to be. But essentially, what this ends up being in most circumstances is you've already gone to the person directly, and that didn't accomplish the situation. You've already gone to the person with a couple witnesses, ideally the elders from their church, but if not, um, you know, older, wiser Christians who are tempered by time and can help you address the situation in a sort of dispassionate and a measured manner. And then we'll call this 2.2B, 2.B, where you've now gone to their elders, you've talked to them about it, you've brought your your evidence with you, you've talked to them, they've talked to you with the person, and, and that still isn't working. Now it is in the hands of those elders to say, we have exactly. a congregation member who is in unrepentant sin, uh, it's serious enough, it's long-standing enough, and it's clearly unrepentant enough that this merits us taking the final step of this process, which is excommunication. Now, they may choose to do other disciplinary matters before they move to excommunication. And this right. is something that I think is very difficult as the person who's been offended. Um, you know, this brings to mind the situation with Amy Byrd and the Geneva Commons mess and, and those goons. It's been very difficult for her, and she's been the only reason I'm saying this, she's been very public about it. She feels as though the wheels of justice in the church have been moving too slowly. And with all due respect to her on this, that's not really her prerogative to make. I understand that as a victim, it can be very difficult to wait for things to unfold the way they are. And it's a very common thing, even in criminal justice cases, where the victim is sort of re-victimized because they have to continue to tell their story. There's other issues right. going on in the Amy Bird Geneva Commons situation. I don't want to get into all the details, but the slowness at which the system moves, that is actually something that as Christians, we often need to submit ourselves to. So here's a here's a real situation that I was in. It was not, I'm not going to use the person's name. We'll call him Scott. His name wasn't Scott, but there was a person that I was actually fairly close to online. Uh, we talked a lot. We, you know, they were writing articles for my blog. We had, a, we actually had like a friendship apart from the Facebook group that we were in together. And then all of a sudden they just like flipped on me. They started saying really terrible things about me online that were not true. And so I grabbed a couple guys who knew this person well as well. We talked to them privately and that didn't, didn't do it. And so I took the step of reaching out to their local elders. I, f I did the work of finding out who this per where this person was going to church. I looked up their, their information. I sent an email to them, and the email included screenshots of the things they've said, um, you know, transcriptions of phone call conversations as best I could remember that didn't go that didn't go well, who I had brought into the process already. I brought all of that to them. And I said, my goal is is for Scott's restoration here for the rec. I said, we may never be close friends again, but we're brothers in Christ as far as I can tell. And so my goal is for restoration in, in our relationship as much as is possible and genuine forgiveness and discipline to happen. I said, here's all of my evidence. Uh, and then I said, 
you're the local elder, so I'm, I'm just trusting you to do what is in the best interest of the peace and purity of the church and in the best interest of Scott as, as the person who's under your care. I had a phone call from those pastors probably within about an hour, and we talked through all the issues. And this Scott person, he went under a process of discipline that took several, several months, and actually so many months that I had sort of forgotten that it was going on because it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. And then one day, like six or seven months later, I got an email from Scott and it was a very genuine, heartfelt apology with genuine repentance, specific examples of ways that he'd sinned, specific things that his elders were having him do that helped him to grow in that sin. That was really, in my mind, the ideal situation and the ideal application of this. Because once once I had brought it to them, then it was no longer in my hands, right? It was no longer my decision whether or not Scott was excommunicated or not. They chose to... Exactly. They chose to invest some more time because of the, the nature of the sin wasn't such that it was it was spilling out to hurting other people. It wasn't anything overly grave. It was an interpersonal conflict that wasn't handled well on his side. Um, they chose to invest some time in it. They very easily could have also chose to excommunicate him on the basis of it. And I would have, as a as an outside person of that church, I would have had to step back and say, I'm leaving this up to the, as the wisdom of the elders, and, and it's out of my hands. But that length of time, I will not lie to you that it was a frustrating six or seven months, however long, until I sort of forgot that it was going on. It was a frustrating time to sit there and feel like nothing was happening. But you have to be able to trust the elders to bring it before the church in the proper time. Some denominations or some churches only have specific times that that stuff can be brought forward to the church. In our church, if if we had someone that was under church discipline and we were going to take the step of excommunicating them, we either would have to call a special business meeting, which at a minimum would take two weeks because it has to be announced a certain amount of times from the pulpit beforehand, or more likely we would bring it to the next quarterly business meeting. So there's automatically like a delay. And in some senses, like that's a good thing. Right. Right. I agree. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't think that's where you were going to end that sentence. <laughs> I just gave Jesse like a little nod, like, it's your turn to talk now. <laughs> and well, let me add to that in case uh, people are wondering, and we can kind of kind of try to wrap this up here with respect to like the, again, the practical implications. Well, let me say two things. One, I'm going to insert something here to take us slightly on a tangent. And that is, you know, Matthew 18 is, I think, a chapter that's predominantly misunderstood. Yeah. And so it's always good to have resources that will help you really understand what the scripture says. So, loved ones, you know where we're going with this. We <laughs> highly commend to you Logos Bible software because by just pulling this passage up in Logos and having access to commentary, the original language, again, for somebody who's not even trained in any of those things, you'll start to get a better sense for the context here because there's so much in that chapter that you'll hear Christians quote that's taken out of context. So you've always heard us say, if you want to understand what a verse means, read the several verses that precede it and those that follow it to begin right. with, and then pair that with something with Logos, which will just pop up the resources as you select the verses that will help you understand. There's a lot that we want to get right here. And so we're talking about human relationship. And then in our human relationship, honoring God and imaging him, we got to get it right. Yeah. And so I think actually that's a really strong case for being able to use the amazing things that God has given us in the time in which we live. And one of those great things is Logos Bible software, just to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And just my little plug for probably my favorite feature of Logos and something I've been using for as long as I can remember with Logos, even before I had a paid package, which you can uh, make a purchase of a base package 
at a 10% discount by going to logos.com slash reform brotherhood. But I'm looking at a web page that is called uh, free book of the month. And this is logos.com slash free book of the month with dashes yes. between the words. And this month they are giving away a copy of a book called reinventing Jesus. And the subtitle is how contemporary skeptics miss the real Jesus and mislead popular culture. And this book normally retails on Lagos for $16.99 and I'm getting a 100% discount. Add to cart. My internet refreshes. <laughs> I'm doing this in real time. It's great color commentary. And I hit next. I don't even have to have a credit card on file for the free book. Place order, and now it is mine. Uh, and then right on that page, there's all sorts of other resources that you can get at a deeply discounted uh, cost if you buy them during the month of July. And honestly, like this resource is phenomenal for all the reasons that we've said. But one of the things that I find is the case with Logos that I don't see with some of the other competitors Lagos is committed by the way, and this is important, not just by what they say, but by how many free and discounted resources they give away on a regular basis. They're committed to helping people build their theological libraries right. so that they can serve the church and serve Jesus better. That's really the, the foundational commitment that Faith Life, which is the company that owns Lagos or that produces Lagos, their commitment is to improve the church's ability to worship Jesus by providing these technical resources. And so that's very similar to the way that we think about our show, that we're trying to provide these digital resources for you, these audio resources, to edify you and encourage you in your walk so that you can serve Jesus better. So check it out. You can go to logos.com slash reformbrotherhood. Again, you can get a 10% discount in any of their base packages and also get in addition to the free book of the month for July and every month going forward that I can uh, foresee happening, uh, you also get five free books when you make a purchase through that website. Right on. It is really a great way to build a theological library. You can't complain about free books. It's also uh, what I found is expose you to lots of great writing that you might not otherwise come across, yeah. but it's almost in a way it's naturally vetted because you can trust it coming across uh, from faith life. So we highly recommend that. And so that was the first thing. The second thing was to kind of close out our discussion to some extent or to kind of wrap it up a little bit would be when we talk about, as you've just said, this idea of like church discipline and exclusion from fellowship, what do we really mean by that? Yeah. And so practically speaking, how I understand it is this essentially means exclusion from the Lord's table. So when Jesus says, uh, and I quote from Matthew 18, 17, and if he refuses to listen, even, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So, of course, we need to understand those categories. That's, again, something that Logos would help us to understand what it means to be Gentile and tax collector in the proper context. But what we're basically saying is that person is to be treated as someone outside of God's covenant people. Right. Someone who should not partake of Christ's covenant meals. It's not just like we're saying, don't talk to that person. Don't hang out with them. Don't let them come in the doors on the Lord's Day morning. It's actually way more serious than that. Right. What we're saying is this person has been identified as not only a covenant breaker, but somebody who's unapologetically right. a covenant breaker. And because of that, not only do they have no right, they have no identity all of a sudden now right. within the family of God. And so we ought to treat them in that way. This is not capricious. Some would say like we joke about excommunication, for instance, as someone's like, you know, can we use that in a lighthearted way? Sometimes it's just when we say somebody disagrees with us, like we yeah. should excommunicate them, like get them out of here. There's like a very serious consequence to this. And in many ways, if you can even get to this point, uh, which I think, you know, it's cliche to say like 90% of the time this will be solved in step one, but that's actually true in my right. experience. Yeah. 
And I have actually had experiences where I was part of a church once where somebody who was a lay leader in a particularly visible ministry had some issues in their family and some attitudes which became outward and manifest and were demonstrative, were visibly demonstrated to those in the church on a regular basis. And the pastor confronted that eventually by way of this process. Uh, He was brought in by way of making the church aware. And this particular person was unrepentant. His name was also Scott. Is Scott the name (laughs) we're using? Scott, yeah. Yeah, his name was not actually Scott, but Scott the unrepentant (laughs) Scott. Uh, And so the decision at the end of the day was to move in this direction. It's heartbreaking. I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody sits down and says like, this is what we actually desire in this process. And yet it was clear by the time you got to this point with this particular unrepentant Scott, sorry for our brothers who are actually (laughs) named Scott. We should have gone with Nate. He could be an unrepentant Nate. (laughs) Now we've just done, we've invented a totally new representative name for the unrepentant Scott. Oh, I'm so sorry, Sorry, Scott. I'm sorry Scott's everywhere. Scott's. I'm so sorry, you Scots. And I don't mean Scottish like, people. I'm talking about yeah, people so named Scott. Say the same thing. <laughs> Maybe I am uh, say sorry, Scots. I don't know. Yeah, I guess if you're Scottish and you're also named Scott, it's it really is the double whammy on this episode. But by the time you get to this point, it's the place where it's it was inevitable. Is that fair yeah. to say? Like yeah. by, by way of this, like no no party is going away saying like. Uh, I was hoping for another outcome. It's so deeply entrenched that it's clear that right. this is the right decision. And I would argue that I would say nine times out of 10, the unrepentant Scott is also at this point, basically not only acquiescing, but wanting this very thing because they've yeah. been having a conversation with church leadership up to this point, And they've been made aware that the behavior cannot comport with what it means to be part of the family of God writ large and the family of God in the local context. Yeah. In my experience, which is admittedly, you know, relatively small in this arena, um, by the grace of God, by his grace, he's kept me from having to be involved in these kinds of situations too often. In my experience, if someone gets past step one, it is almost inevitable that they end up at step three. And the people, the very few instances that I can think of off the top of my head where step two is what turned them around, it actually was legitimately a conversion experience. And Mm -hmm. so it's not, the way I kind of look at it is when a Christian enters this process, almost always being confronted by their sin in a genuine loving fashion is going to result in repentance because that's who Christians are and what Christians do, right? When an unchristian or a non-Christian is confronted by this process, they don't repent because that's what right. non-Christians are and exactly. that's what they do. Exactly. And the, the ones that I'm talking about where like the second step or even the third step is what brings them back to the process, it's because they came in as non-Christians and they became Christians at some point through the process. And that I think that's that's important is that discipline is actually in some of these cases a way of evangelism for the unregenerate within our churches. And I, I want to address one other element, and I'm gonna do this quick because I know that we're already we're already on the second hour of our one hour planned church discipline episode. <laughs> uh, literally, and now we're going on to the second hour of the second hour of our uh, church discipline series. 
Um, the question came up in the Facebook group. Um, it says, this is from someone named Justin in the group. It says, if someone has been excommunicated from a church, so we're talking about not just someone who's been barred from the Lord's Supper, but has actually been asked to leave the church, which is, I think, depending on the situation, is an appropriate thing. Sometimes relationships have been so broken that it, it it's not feasible for that person to remain in visible attendance at a given local church. So right. that's the, that's the scenario. As a means of discipline, would it be the elder's responsibility to inform surrounding churches to prevent someone from taking membership or taking communion, I think is probably more of the question, while under discipline? This is, this is a live question, right? Because again, in the day and age that the Bible was written, this wasn't a feasible option for most people. If you were excommunicated from your local church, either either meaning you're no longer allowed to take the Lord's Supper or your situation was serious enough that you were actually asked not to come back until repentance had been demonstrated, there wasn't an option for you to just go to the other church on the other side of town in most cases. You know, you think about like Galatia, where, you know, Galatia seems to have been a collection of churches. Paul addresses the churches in Galatia rather than the church in Galatia. We're talking about distances that weren't feasible to cover on foot in a single day. Right. And so it wasn't realistic for that congregation member to just go to another another church. Um, in our day and age, it's very feasible, and this is what happens realistically. So I think, you know, to answer this question specifically, no, I don't think that, like, the pastor needs to call every single church in the area and say, hey, by the way, we just bounced this guy out the door and he shouldn't come to your church. But... Um, if there is a, a good reason to think that he may be going from your church where he's been excommunicated, you know, like, let's say you're the only two Baptist churches in town within a reasonable driving distance, you know, it might make sense to give that other, other pastor a call and say, Hey, by the way, we just had this church discipline issue. He might, he's probably gonna be coming to your church. You should know about this. That doesn't mean that that church immediately says you can't come in our door. You can't, you can't sit and listen to the sermon, but it might mean that they say to the person when they come, Hey, you know what? We got a phone call from your previous pastor. And although we weren't there, we do want to respect the decision that they made because right when two or three are gathered, Jesus is there within the midst of right. them. Jesus himself has ratified the decision that's been made. If it was made rightly and according to these principles, we're going to ask you to abstain from the Lord's supper until we can, you know, until you re resolve and can settle what's going on with this other church. That doesn't mean that churches don't make mistake and don't excommunicate people, you know, uh, in error. That happens too, and the local church has to assess that and make decisions about that. Someone comes to our church that's been excommunicated from a PCUSA church. We're not going to assume anything about the validity of that church and that that excommunication because that church is not actually a church, right? So, so there's lots of questions practical questions that happen as a result of this. And I'm just going to go back to what we said initially. These situations are so hyper-specific to the local context that the decision about how to handle them at the end of the day really is best made by local elders and pastors in local situations. So maybe in your congregation, in your context, it makes sense for your pastor to reach out to the other churches in the area. Um, you know, in Presbyterian context, this is a, this isn't actually like an automatic thing because when someone is excommunicated from the church, that goes on a report that's then in a lot of ways is distributed to the other churches in the presbytery because there, there's a, there's a relationship between churches that already exists that facilitates that. But maybe you're in a, in a group with just Baptist churches and maybe it makes sense to call them. Maybe it doesn't. 
maybe it makes sense to say where we've asked them to leave, but we think the best way for them to hear the gospel is to go into another church without any presuppositions about where they've come from. So that pastor can treat them as just anyone else off the street and preach the gospel to them the same way they would anyone else. Maybe that's the right choice. And that's why it's a decision that has to stay at the local level. Right on. I mean, I love that we can have this conversation. We're trying to work with live questions, live interests, live circumstances, because I mean, not to put too fine a point in it. The reason we started this whole podcast was to have dialogue with brothers and sisters and with each other about what it meant to actually get after the things of God. And this is one of those things that we're called to do. If you're part of a church, you play a part in this role and Lord willing, you'll never have to be in this situation. But what we do know is that Christians regularly, either online or in person, disagree with one another. And so we ought to be about the kind of things that God would have us to do when it comes to resolving conflict. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. Yeah. So I want to thank all of those brothers and sisters who have come along with us on our journey all the way up to 246 episodes, but also especially those who have gone to patreon.com backslash reform brotherhood and have given some resources to help us bring this message forward to help us fund all the hosting fees that we have so we can keep the conversation going so that it sounds reasonable in your ears right now. And I especially want to thank brother Joshua and sister Josie who joined us this week through patreon.com to give a little bit. This thing will always be free. We're always going to give out this podcast for free. So it's just an amazing blessing that some people would say, you know what? I want to give a little bit toward that mission, help you cover your costs. We are so thankful. And we turn around every dollar that ends up through Patreon into promoting the podcast, into bringing about new and better resources, into making sure that we continue to have these conversations and that the family of God can be connected in a new and different way. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to, if you're interested in contributing financially after you've fulfilled your obligation to your local church and your own family bills, if you have a little bit left over and are interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash reformed brotherhood and uh, you can give there, or you can go to the reformbrotherhood.com website. There's a little link that says join the brotherhood, and uh, that'll give you a whole bunch of ways that you can get involved, uh, both financially and in other ways as well. And, you know, we really just appreciate all of the different feedback and and support that we get, whether it is financial or whether it's just someone telling us they're praying for us or sharing a way that an episode encouraged them or ask, submitting a question or pushing back respectfully uh, or sometimes even not respectfully. I know we don't appreciate that as much. Um, <laughs> We still appreciate the feedback. Um, All of that is helpful for us and helpful for the show because we really do. And we always have envisioned this podcast as a, as a family conversation. And even though Jesse are the ones behind microphones talking, it's really the other conversations that have helped form and structure what we're doing and why we're doing it. So keep it up reform brotherhood. It's not just me and Jesse. It's everyone in the community. Keep at it. And Jesse until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Oh.